Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. I am sorry that I missed last week. I was actually under the weather and didn't quite have the energy, but I missed doing it. And I appreciate those of you who reached out and asked where the Bible Breakdown was. I was like, oh, man, people noticed it wasn't here. So I was encouraged by that. Feeling 100% now. Just so you know, what we missed last week uh, was Joshua 1. And basically, that's where we see that Joshua is chosen by God to replace Moses. Um, and God tells him to be strong and courageous. The people tell him to be strong and courageous. And that's kind of the theme of chapter one of Joshua. And really, as we apply that, we talk. We, I think it's important for us to think God's calling us to be strong and courageous in what we are to withstand and endure as well as we follow him. And not that we need to get our bench press up or we need to do something that we would culturally call courageous, I guess. I don't know, run into some battle or something. But rather um, to be able to be steadfast in opportunities that God has put before us and things he's calling us to, especially those that we're certain he's calling us to. So, boom, there it is. There's the Bible breakdown for last week, and it took like 29 less minutes. So that's what happened in chapter one. We are now going to be in chapter three and four of Joshua, continuing our story. If you are looking at your Bible, you'll notice that the story of Jericho is chapter two, or at least part of the story of Jericho. Um, Don't worry, we're not going to skip over Jericho. It will come. But uh, this is actually going to be about another miraculous water crossing. So it's going to be very similar to some things that we uh, see as God is giving the authority and leadership to Moses, some of the ways that He is shown to be the chosen one of God. We're going to see some of the same things with Joshua here. And as he's crossing the Jordan, I hope I don't call him Jordan and call the river Joshua. I'm just sensing that threat coming, but we're going to do our best. So in chapter three, starting in verse one, going through verse three, it says this. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. Now, that's how you pronounce that. But ask somebody to read Joshua 3.1 and then watch them squirm as they decide how they're going to pronounce that one. Side note. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. So they come up to the Jordan River. Now they are approaching it from the east. So they are moving east to west, if that is helpful. Um, so they are working their way toward the west side. The west side is where the what we now call the Mediterranean Sea is. And so uh, pretty much everything you think of uh, Israel being is on the west side of the Jordan River. Today, on the east side of the Jordan River is the country of Jordan. So there you go. But uh, basically all the things that we think about, you know, Jerusalem, um, a lot of Jesus ministry, all of that's pretty much going to be on the west side. They're the uh, east part of the Jordan did have some of the lands uh, for some of the other tribes. And in chapter one, another thing that happens is Israel, or uh, I'm sorry, Joshua tells uh, the Israelites that would be settling there like, hey, y'all can chill here, but your fighting men have to come with us across. So that's kind of how that plays out. But it, it never really quite works out for the Israelites with their borders and stuff. But anyways, that's what they're, they're going from the east and they're mo- crossing west across the Jordan. And so the people are told, get ready to go. And whenever you see the ark come by, then that's your that's your cue to fall in line and to go after it. So remembering, of course, the 
Ark of the Covenant uh, represents uh, God's presence amongst the people. So it would be uh, set in the Holy of Holies um, in the uh, tabernacle. And it would be there. It had the uh, some manna. It had the Ten Commandments. And it had Aaron's budded staff, all um, reminders of God's provision and God's power. And then also a reminder of, it's called the Ark of the Covenant because God made a covenant with the people. So it's to remind them of the covenant that they have. But uh, especially during this period of Israelite history on through like the historical books, uh, the Ark is going to take a lot of significance as almost like totem-like in some ways, but usually in a healthy way. Then there's some times where it's kind of in an unhealthy way too. So they're going to kind of abuse that, but it's kind of a symbol of God's presence with them and God's power. So moving down then to verse seven, uh, the Lord gives Joshua some instructions. He says, or it says, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. And they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So God is telling Joshua not only what to do, but he's also giving him a reason that he's doing this. And one reason is God is choosing to exalt Joshua. So to basically give him honor so that the people will see that he is the one that he has chosen. And just like he says, he wants them to understand that God wants the people to understand that he is with Joshua, just like he was with Moses. So that's one of the reasons for this miracle that's given, which is very helpful for us. Um, and also, I think important for us to know, like, it's it's okay that Joshua is getting some credit here because that was uh, God's design in some ways. So I think there's a lesson embedded in there for us somewhere. Uh, one we have to take very carefully, especially if we're trying to exalt ourselves and not be exalted by God. So the priests are carrying the ark and they are supposed to go to the very edge of the water. And then he tells them, stand still there, which, of course, if you're standing in water, nobody wants to stand still in water, right? Especially if you're wearing sandals and you're going to get gross feet and all that. But that's what they're told to do. So then skipping down to verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Parenthetical note. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. So we see it all play out. They go in there. They stick their feet in. I say parenthetical note, because if you're not looking at the scripture, uh, it seems odd to just kind of be inserted, but it's in parentheses in our English translation. The uh, interpreters believe this was meant to be a parenthetical note. So making a note that um, at that time, that would be when the basically the Jordan was in its like floodplain season. So it was overflowing uh, during the time of the harvest. So to kind of let us know that we'll talk about, I think, why that's significant. Um, but the people follow and the priests entered the water. So uh, everything is going, of course, according to plan so far. And the priests this, carrying this heavy ark are also just yeah, stuck there in the water. So the significance of the uh, 
the state of the river, I think, is important on two accounts. One, if you're getting to the very edge of a floodplain, then you would actually, you know, likely have some shallower water that you could stand in versus if you're at a river that has, you know, really carved itself into a part of land and maybe has some like steep banks and things like that. And it's, you know, entirely possible that you could get up to a river and it's like somewhat of a drop off. So, or, you know, at least for a handful of people that are carrying the ark that it might be a little tougher. Also, you know, just thinking about the current of the river um, toward the the middle where it's strongest could also be tough. Um, so the floodplain kind of area of the, of the river seems a little safer to be standing in, but also the f- fact that it was during this kind of flooding season would also indicate that the river was much wider than it would have been say during a dry season. So I think we can take it, A, there's some you know, practical things that are, are helpful in this. Um, but then also it shows that it wasn't when the Jordan was at its least, it wasn't when it's at its driest, but rather at the time when it had the most water flowing down it, that this was the time that the entirety of the waters were stopped up and the people were able to cross over. So it's also a testament to God's power that it it couldn't have been said, well, you know, whatever, it's the middle of summer or whatever. It was, you know, probably really shallow, but rather this is the time when the most water is going to be passing. So God should be given glory for that. So, and it says, um, so, you know, when we looked at the Red Sea, it kind of talks about like the parting um, because seas, obviously we know do not flow like rivers. Um, So instead of kind of the the sea, which split, and here I am, just so y'all know, as I'm talking, I'm doing this with my hands as if somebody can see, and I know y'all can't, but it helps me. So instead of the sea like splitting into kind of two walls, and this instance, what it tells us there in verse 16 is basically the area coming from the north, um, which the Sea of Galilee is at the north of the Jordan River and then the Dead Sea at the south of it. It's basically saying that it just stopped. So the water's flowing from the north side stopped and created a wall on one side, whereas you know the water on the uh, that was going south on the other side of the people um, just continued to go on its way. So they basically, you could imagine that there's this accumulation of water forming from these headwaters as they are headed south. Um, which I'm sure was uh, an incredible sight and something really to behold. So um, that's kind of if it helps you to visualize it. Um, it's there's one big wall of water on one end, and then the increasingly dry land going on the other end since the waters were stopped. So the people then pass over on dry ground, very reminiscent of uh, how it's described when they do cross over the Red Sea. And again, this idea that it's almost like God is saying Moses stopped water or, you know, parted water and Joshua can do that as well. Or I'm going to use Moses to stop to part water. I'm going to use Joshua to stop water. Um, this solidarity or this uh, continue uh, continuity that we, they see between the leaders um, is perhaps intentional again, because God said he wanted to exalt Joshua so that the people would come to view him as a leader, like they had viewed Moses. And I'm sure also that, it would be nice for Joshua if they were a little less complaining than they were to Moses, right? Well, we well, well, we don't know yet. We don't know yet. Maybe they won't complain. We don't know. We haven't gotten there yet. So the people, anyways, they cross over on the dry ground. And then where they settle is uh, just basically, <clears throat> excuse me, just east of Jericho. So that's basically where they are. And then we'll kind of return to that narrative here pretty soon. I think it's next week. But... Uh, 
Then there's something that God calls the people to do after they are done crossing. So in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, it says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then skipping down to verse 7, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So God tells Joshua to have these um, 12 people, one from each tribe, um, kind of this symbolism, of course, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he has them to uh, grab these stones from the dry portion of the river where the priests had stood. And he tells them to set up these stones uh, at the place that they're going to camp that night, which ends up being a place called uh, Gilgal, I believe is where they end up. So that's where they're going to set it up. And the point is that it would be a memorial of what God has done. So we've already come across a handful of these instances in the Old Testament that we have gone through. Um, And not all of them are exactly the same, but like, for example, one is Passover. So the institution of the celebration of Passover to serve as a reminder of when uh, the angel of the Lord passed over the people of Israel. They, Moses had them set up 12 stones when they were given the law. Um, And so there's a, a memorial of when that time went by and Moses was given the law to give to the people. Uh, Moses actually mentions commemorating as they cross into the promised land in Deuteronomy 28. I think this might be kind of what he was envisioning. Envisioning, And then in even as we move forward, uh, Samuel is going to set up a rock and as a memorial, and he's going to name it what we have so horribly decided to pronounce as Ebenezer. So, of course, I most often think of Ebenezer Scrooge when I hear that. Um, so in Hebrew, it's Evan Azer, Evan Azer, which sounds so much better than Ebenezer, which I just don't think is a an awesome use of our English linguistics. But that's kind of, if you've heard the term Ebenezer or um, in the old hymn, here I raise my Ebenezer, meaning like a memorial stone. Um, and it means stone of help is what those two Hebrew words mean. So that's kind of the idea. So Samuel's commemorating, uh, using a rock that God is his help. And so, uh, and then of course, we also see this later in the new Testament, uh, communion, of course, being the most notable kind of memorial that, um, was instituted in the new Testament, uh, baptism as well. Um, though a little, a little different than communion, but still a a reminder of Christ's death, burial, resurrection um, when people uh, come to faith. So this is not new for the people of Israel. This is, in fact, incredibly commonplace. And I think really, as we seek to like learn this lesson and apply, I think that we need to recognize in God's covenant people, who Israel were, that they were like masters of celebrating and remembering 
in rhythms and all the festivals, all the feasts that they would have, all of them with some purpose, um, but also all of them celebratory and feast-like at the same time. And then even, yeah, thinking about these memorial stones and having these places that they can look and this assumption that when the children see it, they'll they'll wonder, like, why is that there? And using that as an opportunity to give glory to the Lord. So uh, honestly, the people of Israel were some of the biggest partiers that you could imagine. They had so many festivals, so many cycles, um, and some of them, you know, required fasting and things like that. Um, but they were all meant to be celebratory, to be celebrated as a nation. And we, as God's people now in the 21st century, and specifically thinking about Americans, we tend to really struggle to uh, remember and to celebrate and to have like rhythms of celebration. And instead, we tend to keep our eyes forward. We are kind of always like on to the next thing. And, you know, maybe it's a nice story that we tell somebody sometime about sometime when we saw God's faithfulness. But I don't think that either, you know, as I, I'm kind of especially even thinking about as like family units, because, um, you know, in the church, depending on how often a church does communion, there's some regular some regularity to that and to celebrate what Jesus has done. Um, of course, thinking about our holidays like Easter and, and Christmas and I mean, that's really kind of it. I mean, you can think of like the whole Advent season, I guess, which is good. Um, but I'm thinking even more like less like church and more like what do we do in our families? What do we do as believers for our children, for our uh, for our parents, for our grandparents? Um, what are what are ways that we are establishing this? regularity of celebration of what God has done? How are we establishing rhythms or uh, memorials to what God has done in our lives individually and in the, in the lives of our family? Um, as I think sometimes we get caught um, really trying to push past the difficult things. And even when we see God come through for us, we're almost like, okay, that was nice for a time, but we need to move on. Um, but just kind of on, from me, just putting a challenge to that to say, um, yeah, of course you can't just sit and remember something all day long, but are there ways that we can establish rhythms or memorials that give honor to what God has done in our lives, to what he's done in the lives of our families, our churches, and even us as individuals. And maybe there are things that we want to celebrate, uh, individually as well. Um, I, there are, and there are ways that we do this on a non-spiritual level, right? So for example, um, think about like your, if you get together with your family, like say for a holiday or something like that, and you have like the same stories that you always go to, or a, a story that you've heard probably a hundred times, but you never get tired of hearing it or telling it, um, things, things like that. That's just one example. But what I'm, what I'm kind of proposing is we need that as well in our spiritual lives. We need that to be a part of our rhythms and our, our worship of God, because what it does is. It, it doesn't remind us so much of the difficulty as much as it reminds us of the deliverance. So when you've gone through something really challenging and you've seen the Lord bring you through it, when you remember it, you're not going to feel the same feelings of difficulty and anguish that you felt, but it is a time to remember, hopefully with clarity, how God brought you through it. And that is just an opportunity to give him glory. Not only does it give him glory, but it also 
serves as a reminder to us that God does take care of us, that he does walk us through difficult situations. So just a couple of examples that I want to kind of just submit as, you know, things you might possibly be interested in, in uh, pursuing that. Um, Things like maybe pictures that um, draw you back to a a certain time, a certain event, uh, a certain season. Um, You know, if you're uh, creative and crafty, you know, stitching things or sewing, you know, uh, something like a, um, oh, what do you call the things with the squares and the quilt? That's it. I found the word. Quilting um, and engraving, maybe like some jewelry with an engraving or some sort of just um, wall decoration with an engraving. Um, having dates that maybe are are sacred and, and celebrated um, in your life personally or in your in the life of your family. Um, just like thinking about ways that we can be creating for ourselves really obvious moments to remember what God has done. Because again, it's it's really a, a symptom of our sinfulness that we have to be reminded so often that God's going to take care of us, right? If we've learned anything from the Israelites, it's that, man, wow, God has done so much for them, but they still really struggle to trust him. And I think that's where we find ourselves in the biblical stories as we are trying to think, oh, how do I apply this? We can see ourselves easily falling into those kind of patterns. And I just want to end with this. Given the nature of our state before we came to encounter Jesus and our state now being uh, invited into the family of God, being given the gift of salvation, the Holy Spirit to be co-heirs with Christ, um, the crossing from death to life. If anyone has reason to celebrate and be joyful and to throw some parties, it should be Christians. It should be the people of God. It should be those who have placed their faith in Jesus. We have so much to celebrate. There are so many things that are celebrated that aren't really worth celebrating. Like, you know, St. Patrick's Day for in America is just like, oh, I get to go and drink green beer, I guess, is really the point of that. It's not actually really celebrating anything in particular. but And yet people will turn it into an opportunity to celebrate and have a party. We actually have so much to celebrate being God's people that we should be the ones celebrating the most. We should be the ones laughing the most. We should be the most joyous because we have sinned much, but we've been forgiven much. And that recognition, just like Jesus said, the person who had a a small debt versus the person who had a large debt, who do you think would love the person who forgave the debt more? And the person he's talking to says, well, I suppose the one with the larger debt. We're all the one with the larger debt. Whether we realize it or not, that was kind of one of the points of the story. Some, Some people think that their debt is small, but all of us have a debt that is incredibly great, but it's all been paid by Jesus, nailed to the cross. So If uh, the people of Israel and God's people were so encouraged to celebrate, to remember these things that God has done, that's something that we should do as well. And those people in that time, the Israelites, they believed in God, they had faith in God, but they hadn't even seen all the things that we've seen, all the stories, all of biblical history that we've gotten to see, all the opportunities to celebrate God. We have more to celebrate God for than any generation before us because we have more history and we have more time seeing what God has done. So just want to encourage you to just kind of analyze and think through what are some ways that you can remember and celebrate things God has done in your life with the goal of increasing your uh, belief in his faithfulness, but then also giving him the glory that he's due.